for you to keep your Bibles open to Mark chapter 13. goes without saying we're living in an age of uh, profound insecurity aren't we if it isn't heated elections racial tensions economic unrest dangerous mutating viruses as if all that weren't enough this week the whole world got to see how relatively easy it was for a mob to overrun what was supposed to be one of our most secure citadels Right, the U.S. Capitol, at least for a few hours. It's gotten to the point where therapists have coined new terms, like crisis fatigue, to describe what life is like in our age. All right, so much drama all the time. And I think this is something that we've all come to feel on some level, even if we haven't diagnosed it, right? This these times kind of wear on all of us. Which makes it doubly hard uh, not to be discouraged at times, to be really pessimistic. It's hard not to wonder, are things really gonna get better anytime soon? Well, aren't you glad that you all joined us for service today? <laughs> Well, I, I, for one, am glad that you have, because uh, what we have here in today's passage, Mark chapter 13, is some really good news for the weary and the downtrodden. Because Jesus here is going to teach us how to live well and even flourish in such times of trial and tribulation. Jesus is also going to show us how to live with uh, some resilience and some poise when it really matters even in the midst of all kinds of chaos and man-made confusion. He's also going to show us how to endure unto true and lasting victory, even in the face of, of the biggest distractions, the greatest temptations, and even some of the most profound forms of, of relational betrayal. Now, how is Jesus going to show us all these things? Uh, well, if you look at the text, maybe you noticed, as it was read, he's going to do so by showing us how to see. To see. See what exactly? To see his cross. In fact, uh, the, the, the words kind of related to, to seeing or being watchful, this, this visual language, it shows up over ten times in this chapter which means it's a big part of understanding what Jesus is actually talking about. Uh, just a few examples, 13 verse 2, And Jesus said to him, Do you, do you see these great buildings? Uh, verse 5, And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Verse 14, But when you see the abomination of desolation. And these aren't, these aren't even all the occurrences of seeing the passage. There are a bunch in the Greek that are a bit obscured for us, which we'll look at later. But conveniently, uh, right at the beginning of this chapter, we see the disciples looking at something. But not just any old thing, but the glorious temple of Jerusalem. And they even exhort Jesus to behold its glory. Uh, look with me at verse 1. And as he, that is Jesus, came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, 
what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. <laughs> wow. Uh, what an abrupt and harsh response from Jesus. Uh, the disciples were just trying to point out how marvelous the temple buildings were, and here Jesus just wants to kill the buzz with this prediction about its utter destruction. What's going on here? Well, first I think we need to better understand what the disciples actually saw when they looked at this temple. It's easy to think, oh, these are just a bunch of country boys from the backwaters of Galilee, and they're admiring some impressive big city architecture. But here's what the disciples likely saw. This is what most, pe most Jewish people saw with the eyes of their hearts when they looked at this temple. What they saw was the most magnificent and tangible reminder that God himself was on their side. This was something that they learned from the, the, the scriptures, especially the Psalms, uh, that this temple was the greatest proof that God had given that his presence abided with them, which means this, the temple, it was a sign of true and lasting security for God's people. Or so they thought. Now, uh, does any of this remind you uh, maybe a little bit of how Maybe some of us Americans uh, see our great Capitol buildings, other landmarks. You know, of course, we don't see them as the, the little houses of God or anything like that. But still, aren't they these impressive and, and almost sacred symbols of our most cherished values, our sense of security and position in the world? Which is why what, what we saw this week, regardless of your political leanings, I think bothered all of us in one way or another. Now, Jesus' response about this temple really, really does rock the disciples. And it might rock us a little bit and help us to uh, put things like our own Capitol buildings in perspective. Because it's as, if, uh, it's as if Jesus is saying to them, Hey, disciples, your sense of security and hope should not be put into these earthly buildings or what you think they represent, no matter how wonderful or formidable or powerful they seem to you. Because as it turns out, this temple, for all of its pomp and glory, is under God's severe judgment. Not so much the, the literal stones and, and the buildings, although they're going to be used to make a point, What's under judgment is the institution of the temple and what it, what, it, what it has become kind of at its core under its leadership. Because by the time that Jesus arrives at this temple, he calls out the rulers of the temple as, as this. He calls the Sanhedrin, right, and all their associates. He calls them a den of robbers. That's what the temple has become, a den of robbers. And recall how Jesus, uh, just a chapter ago, told this parable about a vineyard that's overrun with wicked tenants. The rulers. And also recall how this, uh, this, this parable concludes with these wicked tenants being destroyed, but only after they manage to murder 
the vineyard owner's very son. The death of a son. If you've been following along with us, you know that Mark's gospel has been building up to and constantly pointing to this very thing, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is the central focus of this gospel. Mark is laser-focused on that as the main thing. Shorthand, Christ and him crucified. He treats it as if it, it is the, the true climax of human history, past, present, and future. But you want to know something that's really odd? For a while now, many modern readers uh, come to this passage and they, and they throw this big idea out when they come to this particular passage, Mark chapter 13. That is, uh, many modern readers, we come to the, the, this passage and, and we often think it's about one of two things. It's this map of the end times, right? It's either all about the second coming, the return of Jesus Christ, you know, which is referred to as the parousia, or number two, it's about the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Now, I do think this chapter actually touches on those things, but neither of those things actually make up the big idea. It's not the main point of this passage. Because once you start reading chapter 13, and I'm not trying to pull a fast one, if we actually read it in continuity with the greater context of Mark, you know, while assuming that it stays on message with the 12 chapters that come before it, as well as the three chapters that come after it, what becomes clear is that Mark is still talking about the same thing that he's been talking about this whole time, which is this, the coming of the kingdom of God and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The coming of the kingdom of God and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, this also means that we're not to look at things like the destruction of the temple in 70 AD and use that as the climactic moment of human history and interpret the rest of our Bible through it like some have. And it's also going to have the benefit of, of helping us properly understand the, the, the parousia, the second coming of Jesus. And I would say this is the biggest benefit. It's actually going to prepare us to be about, to be on about what we're actually supposed to be on about while we wait for his glorious return. So as we continue looking in this passage, uh, and I, I wish I had five hours to say absolutely everything. I mean, if you have any questions, uh, feel free to come up to me and, and, and we'll talk afterwards. But as we go through this passage, I, I really want to encourage you all to do this one thing. Simply this. Keep your eyes on the cross. <laughs> keep your eyes on the cross. Because as we'll see, keeping our eyes on the cross is what's going to actually bring us to this first eye-opening command that Jesus gives in this passage. And this is also my first point, which is, see that no one leads you astray. See that no one leads you astray. Now remember, after Jesus predicted the, the destruction of the temple, the disciples are a bit shocked and confused, right? Uh, and they want to know how. How and when is this going to go down? So look with me again at verse 3. Verse 3. And as he, 
And as Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? So here's a scene where four of Jesus' closest disciples, this is the inner circle, which is interesting, right? Because we get to have a sneak peek into this inner circle. They ask him privately, when? But they go one step further. That's not good enough for them to just take him at his word. They ask for a sign or some proof of how it's all going to go down. But here is the problem with their request and their question. The only other time in Mark that Jesus has asked for a sign is by the Pharisees. And the only other time that someone gives a sign, it's Judas who gives the sign. In Mark, a sign is something that's asked for and given by those who are themselves led astray or about to lead others astray. Which is perhaps why Jesus doesn't uh, directly answer his disciples' question, uh, but instead he gives them a command and a warning. Look with me at verse 5. And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. So, once again, Jesus exhorts them to see that no one leads you astray. And then he lists some things that are often peddled to people as divine signs, right? I'm sure we've seen it in our day, and I'm sure it happened in their day as well. And this list is, is some of the worst things that we might ever encounter in this life. Wars, rumors of wars, all kinds of, of natural uh, pestilence, uh, conflicts between kingdoms and nations. This is the stuff of crisis fatigue. But as terrible and terrifying as all those things are, Jesus instructs his disciples to not read too much into these things. Because none of these things actually indicate the end. Why would they? They've been going on since basically all recorded human history. Earthquakes, wars. But they do actually point to something. According to Jesus, all these things are to be understood as the beginning of birth pains, which means they're the beginning. They're the things that lead up to much greater suffering to come. Jesus, even later in this chapter, talks about the greatest suffering that will ever be seen on this earth. And it'll be like birth pains, right? Something truly marvelous is going to come from this extreme suffering, something as good as the birth of new life. So here I want to remind us again, keep your eyes on the cross. Now why would Jesus feel the need to warn his closest disciples, his core trusted inner circle, to see, to not be led astray? 
Don't these guys have it together? Isn't that why they're in the inner circle? Well, I think the answer is uh, he does so because he actually knows them quite well. He knows our frame quite well. We're quite prone to being led astray. Especially when times are miserably challenging and we feel totally out of control. Times of wars, rumors of wars between nations that rise up against one another. I mean, how often do you hear about the rise of China? How about natural and environmental disasters? Let's just throw global pandemics into that list for good measure. According to Jesus, if you make too much of this stuff, you're going to be easy prey for false teachers that come in his name, claiming to be your savior. They're going to get you out of this. They're going to deliver you from this. And according to Jesus, they don't really come in your typical religious forms either. I think we often default to thinking it's going to be some other religion that, that draws us away or some new age cult. But they also happen to come in political and national forms as well. Look with me at verse 21, where Jesus repeats the same warning with, with further elaboration. Verse 21. And then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Yes, false prophets. We know what that's about, uh, religious and spiritual leaders that will arise and perform false signs and wonders to lead us astray. We're not susceptible to that. Um, but guess who else we're warned about and maybe susceptible to, and they've got signs and wonders too? False Christ. But here's the problem. We hear that word Christ and we default to hearing it in the religious sense. We hear, we hear Christ and we think Jesus. But here's what that word actually meant to the disciples. Christ simply meant king. Which is why Saul was a Christ. Which is why David was a Christ. Earthly kings, the kind with divine mandates that primarily served the national and political interests. And Jesus knows full well how we want to take such men we want to put these conjured up divine mandates upon them. And sometimes they even come to us in God's name. And they promise to serve our often limited, passing political and national interests. So Jesus is warning us all to not be led astray by such other Christs. Why? Because the only true Christ has come with the ultimate divine mandate. He's the true prophet and priest as well, which means we're totally free to stop looking to any other man or human institution to serve any of these roles for us. But Jesus knows we're going to need more instruction. We're going to need more wisdom on how to avoid being led astray by such false Christs who are often accompanied by false prophets and, and accompanying false gospels. If you remember our time in Revelation, 
Who was the beast, the great political power accompanied by? The great prostitute, right? She rode that beast. Now what Jesus wants us to look at and commit everything to in order to not be so susceptible, we have to commit everything to a certain agenda or purpose that he's laying out, which is his gospel. This leads us uh, to our second point, and this is the next eye-opening command that Jesus gives, which is simply this. See yourselves. See yourselves. And this actually comes to us from verse 9, which most uh, English translations uh, translate as be on your guard. And this is actually a, a, it's a faithful translation, but in the Greek it literally says, see yourselves. That is, pay close attention to yourselves. Be vigilant, watchful toward yourself. See your existence this way. Now, to what end does Jesus want us to see ourselves? Well, as we read on, it looks like this. We're to see ourselves devoted to one chief end in life. Bearing witness to his gospel. Look with me at verse 9. Verse 9. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. Now, you hear about being delivered over to councils, beaten, um, unjustly tried. Seems like the answer is, Christian, we need to take these things over. We need to overpower these institutions so that they can't cause us harm. That should be our focus. No. Verse 10, you're there to bear witness before them. Because the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. None of this stuff is getting in the way of that, according to Jesus. I, for one, would like to avoid all those things. Uh, severe beatings, losing everything, being bullied by hostile authorities. Pretty sure that violates my constitutional rights. But Jesus says there's something much more important than my comfort my freedom, and my rights. Which is we got to focus our eyes, our attention. Our goal must be to endure in faithful gospel witness, even in the midst of a hostile world. Now, that's a pretty daunting challenge, and I don't think any of us are up for it on our, on our own especially when we know what the cost might actually be. But here's the beautiful promise to those who would set their eyes on the cross of Christ. God himself will be with you by his Holy Spirit. He will dwell within you and speak through you, especially when you need it most. Look at verse 11. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. 
for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. I appreciate that Jesus is very upfront about the possible devastating toll um, that his gospel and being committed to it will have on our lives. This is not health and wealth. Local and national governments might turn on you. Parents and brothers, even your own children. They all may play a hand in handing you over to death. But here's the good news. Jesus knows that pain all too well. He's walked that very road already because he too was betrayed as the son of God by all such people and groups and then some. But we must look to his outcome in the Holy Spirit. So keep your eyes on the cross. So now Jesus has commanded us that, that, that we see to it that no one leads us astray. And then he's exhorted us to see ourselves as on mission for the gospel. And this brings me to my third and final point, which is foundational to the first two. Jesus now commands his disciples to see what I've said. To see what I've said. Look with me at verse 23. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. Once again, be on guard, which is also translated as see yourselves is repeated here. But Jesus adds this critical reminder. I have told you all things beforehand. If you want to actually be about what I'm about, you have to live by what I have told you. His word is what we actually need to persevere in what he's called us to. His word is the lens through which we're to actually see things faithfully and accurately. Now, this world is offering us other lenses, right? All of our screens filled with words, right? kind of function as these windows into the world or a certain way of seeing the world. Spend hours browsing the news sites, social media, telling us, and maybe it's coming from certain false prophets and teachers and Christ, what life is about, who we are, what our goals should be, how we should spend our money and time. Got to cut through all that noise and come back to his word. Because this is what Jesus is even bold enough to say about his word. Verse 31. All those things, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. This thing that we open up every Sunday is actually more substantial than the ground that we walk on, <laughs> right? His word is actually the stuff of everlasting life 
unlike everything else in creation that has the potential to pass away, his word will not pass away. So in order to actually keep our eyes on the cross, what we need to keep before us is this everlasting word. Now, coming back to what I said earlier about how the key to this chapter is, is understanding it's about Christ and him crucified, uh, we're about to look at one of the most debated and speculated verses in the Bible uh, concerning the end times. Look with me at, at just verse 14. Verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And from there, uh, Jesus goes on to describe all the ways that people should respond uh, when they see this abomination of desolation, which sounds like this cosmic, cataclysmic disaster. Now, we hear this and, oh, this sounds weird, abomination of desolation. Uh, but to them, to Jesus and the disciples, it, it really didn't sound that weird because they were familiar with their Old Testaments. And this comes right out of the prophet Daniel. Right? And um, as it turns out, Jesus actually quotes Daniel multiple times in this, in this section, which, by the way, is the longest section of teaching in the whole of Mark. You think, you think Mark would move off message here? I, I kind of doubt it. Anyways, Daniel is key to understanding what he's talking about here. So what, what is it exactly that, that, that Daniel says about the abomination of desolation? Um, well, we don't really have the time to dig into those texts, but I will say, I'll summarize, uh, he, he refers to this abomination a few times in visions that he's had. And they're pointing to, and he doesn't know what exactly even, but they're talking about the most heinous and destructive act of sacrilege that's ever about to take place, right? This abomination goes against everything holy and sacred. Uh, it's an ultimate affront to God himself. It's so bad that it's going to usher in God's cataclysmic judgment as well as the last days. Now, what does that sound like to you? Something bad that's going to happen to a temple that's going to go away. Stones are going to be pulled apart. One that's already under God's judgment. Or maybe, just maybe, it has something to do with what Jesus has been repeatedly trying to teach his disciples up to this point. His abominable death on a humiliating cross. This Jesus, who is the Christ, the Son of God, is about to be brought to the most denigrating place of destruction and disgrace. And it's also there. He's going to take God's judgment upon himself to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, let me ask you all, can you think of anything more profane or sacrilegious or abominable to God than the torture and murder of his very own son, the holy and righteous one of Israel? You think it's about pigs being sacrificed in Herod's temple? No. <laughs> so, now that we kind of have a sense of what the abomination is, 
now that we understand that it's actually about how the true and holy temple of God, which is Christ himself, and how that's profaned, Jesus begins to talk about this great tribulation or distress that's going to be seen on earth or ever will be seen on earth. What's, what's that all about? Some future period where we're all going to just live through hell on earth? Well, here's how Peter Bolt puts it. The suffering that Jesus has in view will be worse than any that has been experienced before and will be worse than anything else to follow. The suffering of Christ on the cross was the greatest suffering this world has ever known or will ever know. No suffering will ever surpass what Jesus Christ experienced on the cross. And this is also why Jesus reminds his disciples that this will all come to pass in their lifetime in verse 30, right? That this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And our passage closes with Jesus telling this um, parable about a doorkeeper where through it he exhorts his disciples to stay awake and to be watchful. Again, this visual language. And it's all concerning the coming of the Son of Man. And he repeats this command three times. And people, and I have in the past too, right? We just assume this is about Jesus' return. But here's the interesting thing. Jesus actually repeats the same command three times in the next chapter when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, about to go to the cross. And we all know what happened there, tragically, right? Peter, by the time the rooster crows, he's denied Jesus, how many times? Three times. And he was supposed to be one of these doorkeepers. Peter, like all the other disciples at this point, before the cross, they're all led astray. They all stop seeing themselves and drop their guard. And they act like they've totally forgotten everything. (laughs) that Jesus has told them. And they flee. But here's what's what's truly wonderful and glorious. Jesus knew that all this was going to happen, that he was going to be let down even by his inner circle. And yet he kept marching on the cross, to the cross. It's like that song, right? Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. And, you, and yet, you still got to wonder, why, would, why in the world would Jesus do that? Why would he take on such an unrivaled burden for such faithless disciples? Well, the answer is, he, he actually knew more than they did, which is a comfort to us and something we should remember. God knows better and more than we do. Um, He knew what the sovereign plan and will of God was, what the outcome of this cross was going to be. So look with me at verse 24 where Jesus talks about why he embraces the cross. And this this tells us what he actually expected the outcome of of, of his cross to be, what the outcome of the tribulation would be. And surprise, Daniel makes another appearance here. Verse 24. 
But in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Now all this stuff about the sun being darkened, the heavenly powers being shaken, all these things, other gospel accounts mention as happening where? At the cross, right? But it's at verse 26 here where Jesus talks about the Son of Man coming in clouds. This is where many kind of assume that Jesus must be talking about his second coming. But is he? Because here's what we need to know. This coming of the Son of Man in verse 26 is Jesus once again citing Daniel. And this time it's out of chapter 7, which was part of our first scripture reading. Um, and this, this, is, this, this is actually the key to understanding this whole chapter, I would say. And so that we're not led astray, and so that we can see ourselves, let's look at this uh, context of Daniel, where Jesus quotes from, because that part um, that, that Jesus quotes from Daniel, it's, it's about these series of visions about multiple beasts who represent the bloodthirsty uh, nations of the world, the kingdoms and nations that rise up against one another, all of them opposed to God and wreaking havoc throughout human history. But then out of nowhere, Daniel sees this vision of a human, that is, someone like a son of man, who shows up and he's coming in the clouds. But where is he coming? He comes to the throne of the Ancient of Days, God himself, where he proceeds to receive this from God. Daniel chapter 7, verse 14. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So verse 26, Jesus is actually talking about not his second coming, not his return, but his ascent in resurrection to his Father to receive everlasting dominion over all peoples, nations, and languages, which brings about what? Which, what does that lead to? It leads into this age that we live in, which are the last days, by the way. The New Testament refers to that post-resurrection age as the last days. This is what happens after Jesus receives all authority over heaven and earth, over all nations and peoples. Verse 27, and then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. You guys know how the, the gospel, of end, uh, gospel of Mark ends, right? After Jesus defeats sin and death through this resurrection, there's this empty tomb and an angel is sitting next to it. 
And he tells these two Marys to go and tell the disciples that Jesus is risen and that he goes before them. And their faithless failure to keep any of these commands, Jesus says he goes before them and he's going to meet them. And as many of you know, after this, the disciples, they're restored. They are recommissioned in the power of the Holy Spirit. And what do they do? They go out to the ends of the earth to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, the risen Lord and King of all, to gather, you know, his elect from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Because you know, you know what the word angel literally means? It, it can refer to heavenly angels, but it also just simply means messenger earthly human messengers. So to close, keeping our eyes on the cross and seeing his word, all that Jesus has told us, let's go from here. First of all, seeing that we're not led astray by the false prophets in Christ of this world. Let us all go from here, seeing ourselves accurately, but also being watchful over what we've been called to do in this life, which is to bear witness to Jesus and his gospel. And as we do so, we keep our eyes on the cross. We do so for the sake of of not just Spokane, Washington, or America, but for the sake of all the nations, right? Because the Son of Man is interested in every end of the earth and every end of the heavens. Amen.